Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. This is going to be like a tongue twister warm up. She was the first thirst trap. Let's just put her out there on the table and then we can move on. My three top favourites, I feel that they platform the outsider and they all in their own way contributed to the world in a really bold, pioneering, fearless way. For me as an artist, I'm inspired by all three of those people. We've finished recording now. My guest today is actor, director, playwright and producer Alexis Gregory. Alexis's plays include Slap, Safe, Sex Crime and Riot Act, which is currently on tour. He's also the only person to have played me on stage as I was one of the people interviewed for Riot Act. I've known Alexis for quite some time and I think our friendship comes through in the conversation you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, Alexis. Welcome to We Can Be Heroes. This is the podcast in which I ask my guests to share their heroes and heroines, the people who've inspired them and who've helped shape their lives. Who is the first person that you'd like to discuss today and why have you chosen this person? Paul, thank you firstly for inviting me on to this really special podcast. I was deciding who to bring up in our chat right to the wire. This has been a very tough call for me. There's been many sleepless nights, more sleepless nights than usual. I thought we should just get it out the way first. Let's just get it out the way and move on. Let's just put her out there on the table and then we can move on. So you know who my first person is going to be and you probably know who my second is going to be. And I thought, God, this is all so cliche, but you know what, we are cliches at times, aren't we? So let's just give in to it. So, of course, the first person is my favourite material girl. I had to choose Madonna. I had to choose Madonna. We've skated close to Madonna in a previous episode because Louise Beach talked about various people whose names began with M, none of whom was Madonna. One of them was the Virgin Mary and one was Marilyn Monroe. So I kept thinking, Madonna is kind of hovering around this conversation, you know. Absolutely. When did you first become aware of Madonna? I became aware from a very, very young age because I had two older sisters. So, of course, in the mid 80s, a lot of young girls, teenage girls, young women were into Madonna. So although I wasn't into pop music or anything like that, you know, I was more into Cagney and Lacey and Juliet Bravo and Heart to Heart, to be honest. But I remember the really early Madonna songs and the really early videos being on in our house and then being a really big deal. Like, my sisters watching Top of the Pops and hoping that that was the week where they showed the full extended video of Papa Don't Preach, where you see her walk up the stairs at the end that you didn't always see. 
and I remember all the visuals, the iconography. And so actually considering I wasn't into pop music and I was too young, it still made a really big impression on me. I remember the first time we saw the Open Your Heart video. Madonna was famous for changing her look in every video. And of course it starts off with the black wig. And then I remember her, she throws her head back and takes off the black wig and she's got this feathery blonde haircut underneath. I remember it being really different and such a statement. And so when I first got into pop music, I liked Kylie Minogue. I liked her first album and I was a big Neighbours fan. So about the age of 10, that's when I first got into music. And so actually Madonna was far too sophisticated for me, even though by the ages of 11, 12, 13, 14, I was actually reading ID magazine and The Face and Sky magazine and wanting to be an actor. And I was really dipping into what I think is actually quite a sophisticated world for an 11 year old suburban kid. And those magazines were my gateway to really interesting visual worlds. And I remember the face article cover story with Jay Davidson, for example, it really made a big impression on me. And he's on the front with a cigarette in his hand, pulling this really defiant face. And then there's beautiful pictures inside of him with his hair flying back in a wind machine and he's wearing a denim cut off shirt and this beautiful silver chain. And it was an issue about the Brit pack. So all these new young actors that were coming through with the most beautiful black and white portraits, people like young Jude Law was in there as well. So, I, you know, those issues were really important to me because all I wanted to do when I was a child was be an actor. And so they were the gateway. Madonna at that time, I remember her first appearing and I remember a girl at school called Tracy Ann. She suddenly became the first Madonna fan that I was aware of. And she started styling herself like early Madonna with the big bow on her hair. And then I remember I was living in London in my first gay flat chair and the guy I was sharing the flat with Brian was a Madonna fan. And I can remember the Papa Don't Preach video because her body had changed. She'd gone from being quite sort of Italian and sort of curvy to the Madonna body we recognize now. But I also remember that video for Open Your Heart you mentioned where she pulls off the black wig at the beginning because it, it was art it was an art statement and the people looking into the peep show included people that looked like they were possibly queer so there was a real frisson of excitement about that video yes. and it does look like art it looks like it could be shot by james bigot have i said the name correctly uh you know the guy who influenced P pierre agile uh, the guy who made pink narcissus yes yeah and obviously open your heart is directed by jean baptiste mondino yeah. so she's working always with these really kind of high-end artists and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned art with madonna because you know sometimes we can kind of think it's it's all a little bit clumsy now and this artists are here to disturb the peace and you know it, it, it's about well, what are you actually saying but actually i do consider her high art and i consider what she's doing now high art but i consider shirley bassey high art being queer sometimes you can elevate and look at in this case artists who may be considered as throwaway or frivolous but you can look at them on a deeper level there aren't many pop artists that i can think of apart from bowie being the obvious one who straddle the worlds between mainstream popular culture and the fringes 
and the underground. I remember when Madonna became doing her imperial phase, when there were multiple books about her. I'm talking about collections of essays about the meaning of Madonna. I mean, there were, there were Madonna Madonna's. studies. There were Madonna studies at universities. If I'd been studying Madonna, I probably wouldn't have got thrown off my A-levels. But yeah, I think she's fascinating. Obviously, as a fan, I can't imagine I will ever not be fascinated by her, whatever she's doing. And actually, I'm, I'm in a... I'm not always in a big Madonna phase, but as we talk, I have been listening to a lot of Madonna recently and it's not, I don't do that all the time actually, but I've been listening to the later albums that, you know, people say they don't like as much, but things like Hard Candy, which is not my favourite, and the Pharrell Timberland sound has dated somewhat, but it also still sounds a bit like classic Madonna. You can hear everybody and those kind of tracks in it. But things like American Life, the production is amazing. And I'm listening to that thinking, wow, this is 20 years old. And if you listen to it on your headphones, it's so crisp and clean sounding and so bold and radical. And that is one of the world's biggest pop stars creating this very unconventional album. I also like MDNA. Rebel Heart, I think, is very unconventional. And Madame X is one of my favourite albums of hers. It's one of my favourite eras. And again, it's just so wonderful to listen to the production, the sounds. I like the auto-tune. I like that she's doing something different. And I just think that's really bold and inspiring that she's not necessarily at this point doing the most obvious things or recreating what was most successful for her. And even a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to another Madonna fan and he said, well, you know, I just want her to do this or to do that. And I said, well, it's not about what we want. I find that really fascinating. I wish she didn't look like that. I wish she looked like this instead. She should record these kind of songs. She shouldn't look like this or shouldn't do that. I'm interested in that idea that we project onto other people, that if they're doing what we want, it's okay. But Madonna's doing what Madonna wants. And obviously a lot of this is tied in to her being a woman and aging and it's very hard to be a pop star and she is still a pop star when you are 64. That's yeah. a tough road to walk. The first show I ever saw of hers was Blonde Ambition and then I went to see the girly show. I think it was Smash Hits did a preview and the headline was something like put it away grandma. She was in her mid-30s, early yeah. 30s. And I also remember the Jonathan Ross interview, the very famous Jonathan Ross interview that she did to promote Erotica and the sex book, where he asks her, will you stop doing this when you turn 40? And she was like, well, why would I? She'd never been conventional until that point. Why would I be suddenly conventional now? Is it a surprise that she's being wild and outrageous and punk at this point? No. You know, I love the fact that she works with all these young artists. I love these never-ending remixes of Frozen that keep coming out, even though they're all two and a half minutes long, and just as you're getting into it, it stops. I mean, I love that kind of music that she's making with those young artists. She's making that for probably younger people as well as her diehard fans. And actually, I saw uh, Instagram Live that she did with Sikik, who she made one of those frozen remixes with where she actually re-records some of the vocals and he he said to her at the end you know i loved working with you because you are up for all my ideas he said sometimes i work with a big name and they just really want to do their own thing they aren't open to the ideas the new young producer brings to the table and as i was on wikipedia looking up rebel heart and the track bitch i'm madonna which used to hurt my ears i realized it's taken me a few years to appreciate it it's a genre called hyperpop 
which is a type of music that mixes pop with almost like a 90s rave sound. And I realized, oh, that's what she's doing. You know, she co-wrote it with Sophie, who is or was a real avant-garde pop star. Sophie was trans and unfortunately died a couple of years ago and created all of these really out there sonic landscapes. And when I was looking up the song again, and I, I saw a, a quote from Diplo, the producer, who, who said exactly the same thing as Sikik, that she was completely open-minded to the ideas and wanted to push the envelope as far as possible. And as an artist myself, that's just really inspiring. She said famously in the Truth or Dare or In Bed with Madonna documentary, depending on whether you're in America or the UK listening to this, she said in that documentary, there's a bit where she's talking with the other dancers and she's the other backing singers and the dancers and she says, I'm not the best singer and I'm not the best dancer, but what I'm good at is pushing envelopes. And I think for younger people who weren't around then, people will maybe not realise or appreciate just how rare it was for a mainstream pop star of her calibre. Bearing in mind, George Michael was firmly in the closet back then. The Pet Shop Boys were making queer pop, but not really naming it as such. And then suddenly you had this woman who was the most famous pop star in the world producing a documentary and she's got these gay dancers kissing on camera. You didn't see that in those days. You didn't see that on Hollyoaks, on, on soap operas. You didn't see it. She really was putting queerness right in the mainstream at a time when very few people were. Even Bowie had backed off at that point. Bowie was denying his bisexual past at that point. Oof. What she was doing was incredibly brave and rare. It's unfortunate when people don't respect that because yeah. they quite simply weren't around at that time. But I wasn't around when the Beatles first became famous, but I know that's big and important. Yeah. I wasn't there when David Bowie got down on his knees on top of the pops, but I know that's a big, important cultural moment. And I think it's a shame if perhaps younger LGBTQ plus people don't appreciate how it paved the way because art, popular culture, TV, film, music, it opens up discussions. And as you say, at a very difficult time for the community, she was leading the way. And to whole generations of us, that era, that film, seeing those dancers, that was the first time I'd ever seen gay people being embraced and welcomed in that film. So it was huge for me. And I just think she's basically the biggest queer going isn't she? Everything she does is kind of infused with queer sensibility. It's queer in the sense that it plays with gender. There was also lots of cross-dressing. There was lots of androgyny. There was lots of referencing to other queer people in the past, like Marlena Dietrich and Bowie. Obviously, she's referred to many times. But also, she's queer in the sense of being disruptive. It's yes. pop, but it's, but it's also disruptive, isn't it? And defiant. Yeah. And it invites you into a world. And talking about that film, at the time, people thought she was crazy to expose her life in that way, but she was just 30 years ahead of everyone else. She was the original influencer. And I think there's so many other things in popular culture that actually we will eventually look back and trace back to her. Even if you look at how sex positive she was, some young people are very, very open about their sex lives now on social media, on Twitter. She kind of paved the way for that talking about her thinking of her as the original influencer what also is interesting i think is how fame has changed so much since she became famous and to kind of straddle both those worlds what fame meant in the 80s and 90s when you were untouchable and even though she still revealed everything we still didn't really know that much about her so i think it's interesting when you look at her instagram which i know some people find problematic 
but she's from a different era in a way and she's playing with fame and what that means in a, a very extraordinary era for us all when everything moves so quick and everything is commodified but Madonna commodified and sold everything back in the 80s and 90s well I say everything obviously she held something back. I remember the the brouhaha around the sex book because I was working at a magazine called City Limits at the time and I knew the publicist at Simon and Schuster so I got invited to to be one of the people that previewed the book. There was a lot of negative commentary around the book at the time, not just from the religious right, but also from the queer underground and people who felt that she was being exploitative or that she was ripping off other artists. But looking back on it later, it really struck me just how this this came out in 1993. We were at the height of the AIDS pandemic. It was before the new medications had come in. It was it was the highest number of people were dying from AIDS at that time. Our community was probably the most vilified it's been in my lifetime. And here was this woman creating this book of images, which is full of all kinds of queer sex. It was so sex positive and it was queer sex positive at a time when nothing was, apart from the underground. It was just completely revolutionary. I think to look at the book even now, it, it would blow your mind, you know, and it, like you say, we're nearly 30 years down the line. It's such a strong statement and the selling of self, the promotion of self online. Again, like I say, with that book in a way, Madonna led the way, you know, so many people are showing off their bodies online and, uh, you know, every picture, you know, to get the attention, it needs to be very sexually charged. Thirst trap. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's what she was doing 30 years ago. A book of thirst traps. (laughs) She was the, this is going to be like a tongue twister warm up. She was the first thirst trap. Um, (laughs) You think about how she acts now and these, you know, photoshopped pictures and whether she's having work done or whatever. But you think, you know, she was, that was the height of her kind of sexual power in a way. And I don't think when people are mean about her that they think about what that can mean, especially a woman in the public eye to be so revered for how you look and your sexuality and your sexual currency how does that morph and affect your psyche 30 or 40 years down the line of course back in the day the really big female stars would often disappear so i think when people say well why does she do this why does she try to look young we're not in the same position as these people who are being judged for how they look and we're still trying to look young I'm saying nothing. (laughs) Let's just say, thank God this is only audio because I don't look that young today. So that's Madonna. Who is your next hero, heroine, shiro? And again, why have you chosen this particular person? I know some people have chosen people that they know or people that have influenced them, but I guess I've been very focused on people in the public eye that I admire as an artist. And my next is, of course, the one and only Sandra Bernhardt, who I discovered through Madonna. I remember being taken to see excuses for bad behavior at the Royal Festival Hall. And I was about 15 and I went with my older sister and she said, you didn't move throughout the whole three hour concert. You just sat there. And then I got into, without you, I'm nothing. And I remember tracking down the CD, which was very hard to do at that time. It's really hard to do and listening to it and just, just thinking it was extraordinary. And thinking I'd never really heard or seen anything like that before. And I mean, I'd never heard or seen anyone like Sandra before. 
I guess as I went a bit further down the line and started to explore other artists, perhaps you could compare her to early Bette Midler. And I know Sandra Bernhard has spoken a couple of times about how Bette Midler was an influence on her, but I'm a huge fan of Sandra's. And I would say there's bits of Sandra in a lot of the work I do, like my solo show, Raya Act. There's definitely elements of Sandra in that and elements of Without You, I'm Nothing. And I've seen all of her shows since Excuses for Bad Behaviour. Although I was very young, I do remember that 90s peak period where she was on the front of the face and ID and she was doing shows in the West End and recording an album and then there were dance remixes coming out and she was on the catwalk. She was a rock star. I just think it's such a unique career, especially when you look at that peak period. And I love that she's being rediscovered since um, appearing in Pose and American Horror Story. And just, again, so provocative, so fierce, so fearless. You know, if she was a, a guest on your chat show in the 90s, you had a, a good guest there. You know, I just remember her sometimes really annihilating certain TV hosts if they were too middle of the road. I remember one guy saying to her, so, you know, you're a gay icon, gay people love you. Why is that? And she kind of refused to answer the question. She said, you know, oh, what? let's talk about my straight audience, my crazy straight audience, you know, and just kind of try to turn it around. Again, someone I'm endlessly fascinated by and somebody I will always go and see whenever they're performing in London. I first heard her before I saw In Bed With Madonna because she appears in that. I was in ACT UP and we were being filmed by BBC Reportage, Janet Street Porter's youth current affairs programme by a young reporter called Tyler Brule, who came and filmed us. And he and I had a brief relationship. We dated for a short time. And he gave me a cassette recording of this wild American comedian. And it was her. And I became completely obsessed. I used to play endlessly the Stevie Nicks routine and the Little Red Corvette the whole thing about Prince and I was just leaving the theatre and she's just wrapped in an American flag. <laughs> and then I interviewed her on the telephone the first time. And when I phoned her, I said to her, oh, I was introduced to you by my friend Tyler Brule. And she said, oh, he's here right now. And he was actually in her house when I was doing the phone. And then I interviewed him in, in person in London. And then I was in LA with my friend Tim and she was doing the I'm Still Here, Damn It show. And she was on such great form. And Marianne Faithful was in the audience. And it was just phenomenal. The mas mastery of being able to hold the audience. And she's so hypnotic and so fascinating. I met her twice. And, you know, she was, as you would expect, she was Sandra, which is what you want when you meet Sandra. I guess there's the element of her being the outsider and being somebody who made it on her own terms with these apparent barriers. You know, she wasn't conventionally looking. Confessions uh, of a pretty lady. <laughs> yeah, and she played with all of those ideas. Like there's that really awful interview actually with Ruby Wax and I love Ruby Wax, but the interview is, is really mean. And she says, you know, do you feel depressed Sandra when you look in the magazines and you don't look like those other women and you're not beautiful enough. And she says, well, I am beautiful. Actually, if you look at the statues all of the classic artwork that we all worship. Those women look like me. I am beautiful enough. And then she turned it around on Ruby and really, um, you know, you're just annoyed Ruby because you're working on a TV show and you're, you don't have a Hollywood career. You're stuck on this 
shitty show in the, in London, and Ruby went, we're going to go to the break now. <laughs> um, but I heard Sandra was very, very upset after that interview. I guess in a way, going back to Madonna, that's the appeal. These were outsiders and people who carved out their own platforms and continue to break boundaries and barriers. And I remember being a teenager listening to Little Red Corvette, the cover version, and I always remember the line, she said, I, you know, I always wanted to be someone who stepped off the main highway and discovered my own America. It really appealed to me as um, a gay kid in suburbia, thinking I don't belong in suburbia, I should be somewhere much more exciting and colorful. It's a bit of a cliche, but those voices, those artists, they really did help me. And they, they let me know that there was a more artistic, creative, gayer world out there. I've been thinking a lot as well, Paul, about the idea of heroes and people we admire and thinking about, you know, what is it about queer people perhaps where we go down that road quite often, you know, with our icons, with our favourite divas, the people that we admire, do we have a more larger tendency to seek out these people and what is it about these people and why do they speak to so many of us i just think it's interesting as to here we are talking about heroes and people we admire and although they don't have to be celebrities or from the world of entertainment i've clearly chosen to go that way i would suggest that part of that is that with some exceptions and obviously things are changing i'm sure that the experiences of younger people now coming out is very different to my experience or maybe even your experience but I would still say that on the whole most of us grow up as LGBTQ plus people with a sense of being other unless we're very very lucky we're in families in which we're strangers even to our own families at some point in our lives before we sort all that stuff out when you feel like that even within your own family it makes sense to me that you would look for alternate worlds and alternate people to look up to because you need to find, you need guiding lights, don't you? You need a path. And they create a safe world for you. And when I look back, I realise, well, firstly, I realise I've been a Madonna fan for 30 years. I've been a Sandra fan for nearly the same amount of time. A lot of the people I still admire are people I admired when I was a child or a teenager, in fact. And I think that's the same for a lot of us. This is why things like nostalgia and concerts of artists that we used to like back in the day are so popular. Of course, I like discovering new artists, but I notice that there's a really strong core group of writers, filmmakers, musicians, people that I've really admired for my whole life. And I look back and I can see that you know, I was 10 and I discovered the Pet Shop Boys and I discovered Grace Jones. And I don't know if Grace Jones was in the media a lot at that point or whether she was having a bit of a quiet period. But I remember discovering Island Life and the album cover that it opens up. And it's just it's like having a piece of art in your hands. And again, that was my sister's and listening to Donna Summer and all those amazing songs. When I was six, seven, eight, I was obsessed with Dynasty and Joan Collins. It really appealed to me. As a child, I didn't have the words or the vocabulary to understand what I was growing into or growing into being. But I had a real queer and a real camp sensibility from a young age, but I couldn't articulate why. And it's only when I go back, you know, I look at Grace Jones, how other and different she was. For some reason, when I had that gatefold album in my hands, I knew something special was happening but I couldn't quite articulate why. 
I think it's interesting, going back to Sandra for a minute, that she's somebody whose work treads a very, very fine line because it's very difficult to explain to people who haven't seen her how it isn't stand-up comedy in, in the stricter sense of the word. She's a musical performer, she sings songs, and there's a mixture of homage and taking the piss and you're never quite sure where the line is. She walks a very, very fine line where you're not sure how sincere it is and how much she's taking the mickey. And a lot of the humour comes from that sort of unsettling. It's quite, it's quite unsettling. And it's very sophisticated as well. What she's also doing, again, which I think this appeals to queer people, it's very sophisticated and high-end, but it's also got another foot in popular culture. And yeah. she's looking at popular culture from the outside. So there's so many different layers to look at her work through. And I think she's this kind of postmodern icon in a way. And watching Without You I'm Nothing for the first time on a big screen about three or four years ago, the Cinema Museum in Kennington did a screening of it and it was an exclusively queer audience. And everyone was laughing. Everyone was laughing at all the jokes and those you know, those jokes by that point are like three decades old. There's dust on those jokes. There must have been dust on those jokes. It's still funny, you know, and just we, we all got it. We all got it. There was a kind of collective understanding. I love Sandra. I mean, just a legend, a rock star, still turning it out. I was so gutted because you and I were going to go and see her together at Ronnie Scott's and we left it too late and then you managed to get a ticket and I couldn't get one. I got I a so really expensive ticket sat behind a pole and then I got there and there was, thank God there was a gay guy who was the maitre d' and he said, oh, you've got that seat. He said, let me show you somewhere else. Maybe you might want to sit here. And I was all snooty going, well, I, I don't want to commit to anything. Show me what it is first before <laughs> I get up my seat behind a pole, my restricted view for 90 quid. And then he took me to the best seat in the house. I said, I'm really quite happy here, actually. I, I prefer this to being sat behind the pole. And it was fantastic. And he really looked after me. And then I met Sandra after, and I'd met her about 10 years previous. And she says she remembered me. We'd spent a quite, a quite crazy day together in London. And she said, what happened to us that night? <laughs> what happened? I said, we just, let's just forget about it, Sandra. Let's keep moving. She said, you're right. Uh, and then the, the nice gay maitre d' said, do you want to come and see the second show? She's doing it again at 10 o'clock. I said, no, this is too much, for, even for a gay boy from North London. I need to lay down. I've reached peak level already. Fabulous. I fully heartily endorse Love of Sandra. And I think anyone who isn't familiar with her should definitely check out her work and listen to some of the live shows because they are classics they really are they're extraordinary and they completely exist in their own world and their own plane and in a way that makes them timeless because they can't date because they were ahead of the the game at the time who is your third and final I'm cheating a little bit with my third and final because I do have one, but then I, I've got a few little sub bullet points afterwards. I might be able to sneak some other ones in. Third and final hero, I would say, is Tony Kushner. So if anyone isn't aware, Tony Kushner is a very well-respected playwright and his most famous plays are the two-part Angels in America. And again, I discovered those plays and discovered Tony Kushner when I was a teenager and immediately they spoke to me but I can realize now looking back that I didn't fully understand them because the plays are so deep and really about some of the most complex aspects of being a human being and I hadn't lived as much at that point I was 15 or 16 and I remember going to a, an audition for a theatre 
production and they said to me what what are you doing what what piece are you going to do and I said I'm going to do something from Angels in America and I think I did the piece where the young Mormon is in a bar and he's talking about the importance of father figures and they went oh great fantastic and then I did it and I know they were really disappointed because I just couldn't give it the weight that it needed I hadn't had enough life experience at that time but for me as a playwright as a gay playwright Angels in America is what I one day hope to aspire to and for me this is subjective but I would say I think from perhaps a gay male point of view the three greatest plays are Angels in America, The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer and Martin Sherman's Bent. For me that's the holy trinity, the work that is just on another level with all of those plays. They, I mean to read Bent now and it was put on in the late 70s, as far as I'm aware, for the first time at the Royal Court. It's still, it's so explosive. You know you have dynamite in your hands, so powerful just to read it. Every time I write a new play, I, I go back to Angels in America and I absorb its greatness, I hope, its boldness, how radical but accessible it is, how it's about such massive themes that are really almost too big to comprehend, but are still about you and I and the reader and the audience member. And it blows me away every time. I met Tony Kushner after the National Theatre put on Angels in America. I was with a friend and we were watching part one as the matinee, part two in the evening. And it was the first day they were doing both parts back to back and Tony Kushner was in. And my friend said, you should go and say hello to him. I said, oh my God, I can't. I was just so, I was so nervous. He said, Anthony is my friend. And he said, go over, go say hello. And I got him to sign my program. And I said, oh, I'm a writer too. And he went, oh, you write plays. And I thought, well, I didn't say I was a playwright. I don't know how he knew that. And I just thought he was so charming because I mean, he's probably had about three decades of younger gay men going up to him saying, I write plays too. And he was all interested and kind and open. And then I said, you know, Angels in America, it's just like the most extraordinary work. And he said to me, nah, it kind of works. And I thought <laughs> that's just the kind of perfect response you want from Tony Kushner. So for me, his work's up there with the likes of Arthur Miller and Tony Kushner's written about Arthur Miller. He's written about Larry Kramer. Uh, it, it, to me, it's just a really singular, exciting, pioneering voice. And again, to put those plays out that as well as looking at queer community and AIDS, obviously wider themes, but to put those out at that time must have just been so exciting. And I waited years and years to see it on stage. I think I first saw it at the Lyric Hammersmith, early 2000s. I'd waited 15, 20 years by that point because I missed it first time round. I, I don't think I was even aware of it. I was too young. And then I saw it years later at the National, as I just mentioned. But so I'm a massive Tony Kushner fan and people like Neil Bartlett, I really admire how Neil's had a career as a performer, a director, a novelist, how anything that Neil does is so exciting. I love Mark Ravenhill's work, Tennessee Williams, Almodovar, and of course, Ricky Beadle Blair, who I've been lucky enough to work with for about 20 years, is um, a massive hero of mine. And so much that's happening in the mainstream now is stuff that Ricky's been pioneering. Well, I first worked with Ricky two decades ago. He was pioneering it then. So he would have been pioneering it before we met as well. The idea of queer actors and queer roles. 
encouraging in a very gentle kind way um young actors to come out and play queer roles it was you know i did that through working with ricky 20 years ago and it was never something that felt like a pressure or an obligation but it just became the most natural organic thing to do working with ricky where we would create these plays and ricky would have an idea for a play and hire the theater there'd be no script until we arrived on the first day of rehearsal and we'd throw ideas around and he would say i'm taking little bits of your dna but i'm i'm it's not you but we're working together and i'm i'm creating these characters for you and every day you'd come in and there'd be another scene another scene until we had the whole play which is a massive honor to have someone like ricky write roles for you actors don't get that very often and of course what he's done with championing black characters black queer characters always put them center stage multicultural casts all of these things which are now thankfully in the mainstream ricky's been doing encouraging artists to become producers and create their own work and to have agency over their own work which is becoming more and more commonplace with people making tv shows where they're the actor and the writer and the exec producer that's a whole model that ricky always encouraged us to do yeah i'm really lucky to have ricky as a friend and a collaborator um he's a complete visionary and pioneer if you think about the people that you've chosen are there things they have in common are there qualities that you identify with or that you can see why you were drawn to them i think in a way we touched on it earlier my three top favorites madonna sandra bernhard and kushner i feel that they platform the outsider and they all in their own way contributed to the world in a really bold pioneering fearless way for me as an artist i'm inspired by all three of those people all queer or with a queer sensibility completely unapologetic about that, brave and risky, taking risks. I'm really not interested in artists or creating work myself that just follows the current conversation. That's the easiest, safest thing to do, I think. It's much harder to think what's the next conversation going to be. We live in a culture, I think, that latches on to new conversations and issues and topics when it's safe to do so people will suddenly come out in support of a particular social or political issue, but they didn't three weeks earlier. And so I think it's harder to be bold and brave as an artist. And I think the consequences of when that goes wrong, it's inverted commas, is tough, but I think we just have to carry on. The alternative is that you stagnate. One of my many favorite Bowie interviews which was in mid 90s when he did the outside album which was a return to the experimentalism of his pre-80s or up to up to scary monsters he did an interview which has surfaced since he died and he's being asked about advice to artists he compares it to being in water walking in the water if your feet are touching the bottom you're in the wrong place step out a few more feet until you can't quite touch the bottom and that's when you're in the right position to create something interesting and i think that is such a perfect piece of advice to a creative person i knew you were going to say that quote because it's quite famous and it really hits the nail on the head and it's hard to do that as an artist you think do i just give people the same as what they had previously they liked it before and all these things, but I just think anyone who goes out and tries to give people a new experience, open up a new conversation, make them see things in a different way, I think it's really commendable and really exciting.
Thank you so much for taking part in this podcast, Alexis. It's been such a joy talking to you about your icons. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. We've finished recording now. My thanks to Alexis for such a stimulating conversation. And to find out more about him and Riot Act, please visit his website, alexisgregory.co.uk. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. It's Julia Roberts playing Liz Gilbert in Eat, Pray, Love, which I first saw when I was still a junkie. I'm accepting that my, my thinking, I can be Julia Roberts in Eat, Pray, Love, is so specific. But when she goes to Italy, I go, God, I didn't know anyone could do that. She's gone to Italy and she's learning Italian by eating spaghetti. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burstyn. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.